Please stand for the word of God. Exodus 12, 1 to 28. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left until morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days, you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because, on it was, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native-born, who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, deep it into the blood in the, in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway. 
He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of, Is of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. We'll just put it away. Oh, gosh, I don't need that either. Somebody suggested this after first service. You'll know why in a minute. <clears throat> Okay, much better. <clears throat> Good morning, church. Wow. Oh, okay. Um, you are spiritual Israel. You are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. You are the body of Christ. He exists in you and you in him. Furthermore, you are the bride of Christ, and he is preparing you gradually for a glorious, immaculate reception when you arrive in eternity. You are the body of Christ. Pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, it is such an amazing thing that you would choose us from before the foundation of the world to trust in you, to participate with you, to have fellowship with you, and partner with you in our salvation that you provided and we just believed. And we believed because you called us to believe. I just ask you, you would open our hearts today, help us be wide open um, and ready to hear what you have as we go through this passage. Thank you for your mercy. Amen. So, um, God is an artist, if you, if you don't spend a lot of time reading this book, may I point out that this is one of the best pieces of literature I've ever read, okay? And if you want to get the point home quicker, I suggest picking up a chronological Bible and reading it chronologically. This will sort out the time frame, right? But if you look at the points of how to describe a story, how to unfold a narrative, the Bible does it brilliantly. The Bible is God's revelation to us, in the Old Testament, he, he has a plan. God has a plan that existed before we existed, before the earth existed. As I like to say, he wrote the book before he made the movie, right? Um, but he revealed his idea. What is his plan? His plan was to provide a savior, and through a guy that he picked, Abraham, all nations would be blessed, right? But he doesn't just sit down and tell you how he's going to do that from the beginning, Rather, he gives little pictures of it and little hints. I was mentioned, uh, my wife and I really recently went to a Jasper Johns retrospective at the Broad Museum in downtown LA. Uh, Jasper Johns is a guy who painted a lot of flags, paints a lot of pictures of flags, and you go, and pictures of numbers. 
And if you go through his exhibit, he just works this theme and he works it and reveals a little bit more in one painting and a little bit less in the next so that, you're spo- that you would be able to come away with an idea about what he's trying to say if you look at all of them. The Bible works that way. From the very beginning, um, God gives little hints and little tips of things that builds on itself as you go through to the end of the book and get to the revelation of Jesus in which he finally reveals himself through a person. Jesus, the living word, who came to express God to us and to save us both, right? Okay, for this reason, we are looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, or rather, Jesus in the New Testament, fulfilling things that happened in the Old Testament or giving them meaning. And today we're going to look at Passover. And I want to make this point. Um, The connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament is really important, okay? Because in many ways, Christianity is the evolution of Judaism. Same God, same guys. Jesus was a Jew, right? And so we got grafted into that faith that changed with the advent of Jesus. But it was part of the continuing revelation of God's story to save us. So there's, there's, no, there's not really a separation. It's a continuum, Uh, Okay, so how good for us that we get to study this stuff and look at it together. And you know what? It's a lot of work, really, um, at the end of the day to find these things and put them together. The Jasper Johns show exhausted us, and we never really did get the point. But um, (laughs) Okay, it's another flag. That's awesome. Um, So I'm also going to... uh, I'm going to attempt to let Scripture do most of the work. Uh, And you guys are saying, you know, fat chance, we know you. So... um, I'm going to finish off the passage first, and you can stay seated for this. I'm going to start right after where Fran stopped, and the last thing she said was, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Do you remember how Dave has talked in his series about they did this, and they were hit and miss, mostly miss? This is a hit, right? Whenever it says they actually obeyed, that's a hit. So that's score one for the home team. Um, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. And also bless me. (laughs) The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. Many other people. Hmm. Many other people went up with them. As well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. The many other people... I'm sorry, I just recognized that. That means that not everybody who went out was a Jew. That's what that means. As well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. 
The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. And oh, by the way, God told them to get rid of all the yeast. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the restrictions for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have brought, oh sorry, any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the aliens, uh, the alien living among you. Again, all the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Okay, so historically... Um, you know that the Jews went down, Abraham came out of Iraq, God turned him into to 12 uh, tribes, the 12 sons of Israel, and at one point they went down to Egypt, they stayed there for a couple hundred years, they became slaves, and at the end of that, they, it was very miserable, and God releases them from Egypt. He does that by sending a series of plagues against the Egyptians, um, this consisted of, you know, nasty bits like uh, gnats and flies and frogs and blood and hail. And there was a series of nine of them gradually added up to each other. The country sounds completely trashed by the time they get to this 10th one, but God has a real winner saved for the, for the 10th plague. Incidentally, every one of those plagues generally represents an object or a, or a creature, a fly, a gnat, a frog, that Egyptians worshipped as gods. So he kind of cuts them at the knees one at a time. And at the last one was to kill, God killing the firstborn of every Egyptian family and their animals. Right? So do me a favor. Everybody stand up for a moment. All right, do the math really quickly. Each of you who is a firstborn, sit down. Okay? Um, check that out. That's, that's probably better than 50% of you. All right? This was a nightmare in Egypt. Sit. <clears throat> Thank you for, for, for the illustration. Also... About the time Moses was born, the deliverer, do you remember what Pharaoh did? He heard about a deliverer coming, and he went out and ordered the Jews to drown every baby boy. I'll take your firstborn, Pharaoh said. And in plague number 10, God said, guess what? I'll take yours. God never intended for the Israelites to suffer this plague of the firstborn death, and yet he nevertheless required them to participate in a ritual, um, ritual sacrifice and demonstration of their faith in order for them to participate in the deliverance. Okay, oh, um, who's back there? Bruce? Can I have the first one? Oh, great, okay. Um, so 
the, I'm going to talk about the ritual and the pieces of it, and then we're going to transition to finding this in the New Testament and how it applies, right? So to make it simple, sort of a memory device, remember the key elements, I made this slide. The next one, please. And I want you to think about, there's four elements. It's uh, the beast, the feast, the yeast, and freedom. <laughs> or put into a contemporary context, you could also go the beast, the feast, the yeast, and Easter. But uh, I should have thought of that. But anyway, somebody pointed that out to me. Um, forgive me for calling a lamb a beast, but it made them, the, the rhyming makes the memorization easier. Okay, the principal thing to notice about the lamb was that it was to be a one-year-old male without spot or blemish. Very, very, very important. Uh, in other words, it was perfect. The quote on your bulletin is, for, is Peter writing in his, one of his letters talking about the perfection of Christ as the lamb of God. It was to be slaughtered at twilight with the executioner catching the blood in a basin to be dashed on the doorframe so the destroyer would see it and pass over the house. Um, then, then it was to be roasted over fire and completely consumed by whomever had gathered in a single household together with bitter herbs like horseradish and unleavened bread. Any leftovers in the morning were to be burned so nothing would be left. And a very important detail, no bones were to be broken. Now, not breaking any of the bones of the roasted lamb has serves no functional purpose at all, right? It simply is an instruction that goes into the symbolic reference points that later is fulfilled in Jesus, who on the cross, not one of his bones was broken. Psalm 22 also talks about that. See how the ribbons weave through the whole narrative of the book? This is what we try to follow. Now, just as a quick observation, it mentioned when they left Egypt, there were perhaps 600,000 men. Okay, that's men of fighting age and older. Of, so the age of 20. So by the time you figure in all the women and children and others, it was perhaps two and a half million people. If you calculate how many people it takes to eat one lamb, it comes out to about 10. Just trust me on that. I read it somewhere. So if you, don't, if you only have a household of four, <clears throat> you want to grab neighbors, right? And you bring them in so, none of the, so you can eat as much of the lamb as possible, okay? Um, if you take the two and a half million people, divide it roughly by households of 10, that evening in Egypt, 250,000 lambs were slaughtered. It was a bloodbath. The story doesn't tell the narrative of somebody catching it in a basin, but somebody did. Uh, that's how you had it to splash on the doorposts of your house, which really probably resulted in a motion that looks something like this. That might be a stretch, but just register that one um, in your a mind's eye, okay? Now, on the same day that the lamb was to be slaughtered, all yeast was to be removed from your household. If you read more scriptures, it will tell you all yeast removed from the land, not just from your household. And only unleavened bread was to be consumed. At midnight, same night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. Uh, that... It's almost basis on a conversation of its own, but that's for another time. Um, the, everyone belongs to God. He can do with them as he wishes. And it created an unimaginable scene of chaos, destruction, and despair. In the middle of the night, Pharaoh finally relented, at least temporarily, and ordered the Jews to leave Egypt. Moses, Aaron, and the tribal elders mustered and led, perhaps, as I said, 2.5 million men, women, and children into the desert together with their flocks and herds in the middle of the night. It was pandemonium 
in this scene. <clears throat> now, before any of the stuff happened on the Passover, before the lambs were slaughtered, before the blood was splashed, before the, the feast was consumed, um, God also instituted as a lasting ordinance the commemoration of this liberating event. Let me say that one again. The commemoration of this liberating event. Right? We're going to return to that a little bit later. His purpose was clear in doing so. The annual observation of the Passover would be a perpetual reminder of God's great deliverance of the Jews from their oppressors in the past, as well as a picture of an even greater deliverance to come in the future. Just quickly, I want to read to you from Exodus 13. On that day, he's talking about in the future, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Okay, so they were in fact commanded to keep this observance with severe consequences for anyone who didn't. If you read in the scriptures, it tells you anyone who doesn't keep the Passover must be cut off from the community of Israel. Our modern-day equivalent of cut off would be excommunicated from the fellowship. So they were very serious about observing this. Um, now, it's, the interesting thing here is, it tells us in Revelation 12 that the lamb was slaughtered before the foundations of the world. Okay? A quick aside, God dwells in the perpetual now, right? Um, God is outside of the boundaries of time. Time is a construct that we use to sort of order things, and it works for our small minds, right? God is outside of that. So the accomplishment of the sacrifice of Jesus was done before the world was ever created. You probably know that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he prepared good works for you to walk in. All of this, I like to say, did I already say this? He wrote the book before he made the movie. Okay. Um, so we see this looking forward, looking backward. My point is, uh, in this, the Jews were looking, would always go back and repeat that this sacrifice had something to do with their freedom and look forward to the final fulfillment of it. Now, in the, uh, in the transaction here of their freedom, God did all the work. The believing Jews only had to carry out a relatively simple theatrical gesture, which is the slaughter of the lamb, the splashing of the blood, the removal of all the yeast, and God accomplished the rest. He killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. He softened Pharaoh's heart. He parted the Red Sea, okay? And they just had to do a simple, relatively simple thing and have faith and believe that he was going to do what he was going to do. Now, if you're placing this in history, this is roughly about 1500 B.C., Abraham, about 2000 BC, this event, about five, uh, 1500 BC. Now, just one quick um, note. There were regulations about who may participate in the Lord's uh, Passover celebration and under what conditions. If you read the text there, it talks about aliens and slaves and people like that. Um, they could participate if they were circumcised, which is what? That was becoming, adapting the Jewish faith, basically. So the Passover commemoration was for believers. So there was that exclusivity, right? Just wanting to keep that in the back of your mind. Okay, let's transition, shall we? Um, 
in, uh, I want to talk about a moment as Jesus as lamb. Now, you'd think I would take this further, and I'm only going to stop here in very simply. In John's gospel, Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist, not the same guy as the guy who wrote the book, as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist, one of the last great Old Testament prophets, without baptizing people into repentance, and one day Jesus walks up and says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. They understood from these pictures in the Old Testament of what Jesus was going to do. Now, also, John, the same guy, wrote the book of Revelation, and in Revelation 21, it's just a lamb festival. I, the lamb is all over that chapter. It's glorious. I would suggest you check that out. It's used many, many times. Now, also, finally, in the timeline, in the Jewish calendar, does anybody know what holiday they were celebrating when Jesus was crucified? Crucified? Passover, thank you, okay, on the night that Jesus gets together with his apostles and institutes the first supper, that it's either the day of preparation for the feast or the day of, first day of Passover, depending on, on um, whose opinion you go with. But nevertheless, very, very close to the date, Jesus was the Passover lamb, right? So I'm going to wrap that one up. Um, so... I want to interpret the beast, the feast, the yeast, and the freedom. So let's go into that. And to do so, I've made another memory device for you. And so can I have the next one, Bruce? We're going to talk about these three ideas. Purge, participate, and recognize. So let's talk about yeast, which is what you get to purge, right? Theoretically, yeast in the Bible is almost always a symbol of evil or corruption. Almost always. Um, with the added sense that the introduction of even a little can spread through the entire context to which it is introduced. Yeast, biologically, um, it's very useful in getting bread to raise, rise, raise, puff up. Um, it's also nice in getting juice to ferment and produce wine, which is really a process of controlled decay. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, you could, you could suggest those are positive uh, aspects of yeast. And holy smokes, my short on time. Okay, so um, the other thing yeast does is it infects things. If you ever have a yeast infection, I don't need to explain that, right? But it only takes a teeny, teeny, tiny amount, and it spreads through very quickly. Jesus referred to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which he called out as hypocrisy, as yeast in Matthew 16, 5 through 12. There's a scene where the apostles are together with Jesus, and he says to them, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're going to them, oh, it's because we didn't bring any bread. We don't have any bread. And Jesus challenges them and says, ah, are you kidding me? Do you not remember the feeding of the 4,000? Do you not remember the feeding of the 5,000? Ah, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He never explains what he means by that. He just says that, but then the commentary says, uh, the commentary in the gospel says, uh, so afterwards the apostle said, oh, he wasn't talking about bread. And they understood that he meant he was talking about the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because a bad, a bad idea might sound like it's baptized with God words, but can spread very, very destructive um, practices and beliefs through the church. Just pick one example. I was talking to somebody recently who mentioned um, cafeteria Christianity. And I think the worst example of that is, uh, yeah, I believe everything about the Bible. I'm into the gospel, except, you know, I'm not really accepting um, the uh, being 
the for, uh, prohibition of fornication. I'm just, that's not fitting into my paradigm right now. Um, that is yeast. That idea will entice a lot of people and spread like a disease, and it must be eradicated, and it must be eradicated radically immediately. That's just an example. I'm sure you can think of more. Um, Paul, who I'm going to let interpret this, makes a very specific reference to Jesus as the Passover lamb, probably the textbook proof text, if you will, in a very unexpected context. His discussion has the added benefit of explaining the removal of yeast and the eating of unleavened bread in the Passover observance. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians, uh, and I'm gonna, I will try to abbreviate this a little bit. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Um, he's, he's calling out uh, the church because this is the, this is the church we remember in Corinth. They were very modern. And they had they'd broken up into a bunch of cliques. And one guy said, well, I kind of follow Paul. I kind of listen to Apollos. I like Stephanus and all this kind of stuff. And they created divisions within themselves. And they were really proud of that because how sophisticated they were. And in their pursuit of this progressive sensibility, they were also accepting of I'm going to call it an alternate lifestyle when some dude in the church was sleeping with his stepmother. And they just said, well, you know, I'm, he's, he's not ready for a fuller relationship. I, whatever they said. I mean, you've heard these things discussed. Paul found this appalling. And so he says to them, oops, that's 2 Corinthians, that won't work. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival with the, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. This exhortation comes to an assembly that was proud of their progressive sensibilities as they tolerated that guy that I just said. Um, and just as yeast, an apparently attractive but deadly opinion, like the one I just described, like the tacit tolerance of such an offensive act, can soon permeate a body if it is not removed completely. So, if we look back on the Passover, the removal of the yeast from the household, and indeed the entire land, it says in other places, was a symbolic gesture of avoiding the infection that could spread if not checked. This time also, it pointed to the time when the Spirit would be given through the sacrifice of Jesus, and God would write his laws on our hearts. Paul says this is how we really are. When he says the, the Passover lamb was crucified, and that's how you really are. You really are unleavened bread. Right? Because you've been crucified with Christ. You've put your, you, your old man has been put to death, right? And you're living a new life, a progressive holiness in pursuit of Jesus Christ. Of course, it's not perfect, but that is the general direction. And because of the Holy Spirit, you actually have the ability to live a progressively more holy life. Okay? When in the Passover, they kept unleavened for seven days, and then, then they went back to their old ways. 
right? So it was a symbol. They kept repeating that someday this will happen. Someday our, uh, the sins will actually be taken care of and God will write his laws on our hearts. We, of course, get to enjoy that because of Jesus. Um, Jesus, incidentally, so the getting rid of the yeast was about that. It was a, it was a picture of purity. And Jesus does this. He comes into Jerusalem. Uh, it's around the Passover, two days before the Passover. He goes into the temple courts. And in the courts of the temple, there were crooked swindlers who you would come to sacrifice a sheep or a goat. And I would examine your sheep or goat and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, he's not up to the test. He's not really working. So uh, let me give you 10 cents on the dollar for your lamb. And I have this fine new lamb here that will work for you. And I could just charge you double. Um, but then you'll have a sacrifice. And so that's what, that was the nature of what was going on in there. And oh, incidentally, that poor one that he bought from you, he's going to resell to somebody else in about 25 minutes. Jesus walked into that situation and he was appalled. And he opened up a can of you know what. He, he braided a whip. He turned over the tables. You ever want, want to see Jesus flip out and make a point? That's when he does it. And he was ridding the temple of the yeast for Passover. Right? Get rid of the yeast. So that's, that's the point. Even Jesus did it. Next question. Why did they eat the lamb? What's the point of eating the lamb? Um, what is the significance of consuming a sacrifice. Uh, at the risk of oversimplifying it, it's a kind of entering in to the work of the deity to whom the sacrifice was offered. With the Passover lamb and subsequent sacrifices, the symbol was that the death of the animal appeased God and covered the sin. In fact, all the sacrifices were symbolic of God's taking away the sins of believers through the work of Jesus Christ, which was to happen in the future. Just a quick one is somebody dies, there's blood, the blood covers you, or something covers you. In the Garden of Eden, after the fall, it says that God made, made suits of skins for Adam and Eve to cover them. So first sacrifice was God did it in order to cover them after their sin, right? Very beginning, the idea is introduced. Um, there's a discussion in 1 Corinthians about eating meat sacrificed to idols. The idea is when you eat the, something that's been sacrificed to an idol, you participate, you enter into whatever work you think that deity is accomplishing, so it's an identification and a participation and an agreement with. And so the tension in 1 Corinthians was some people had come out of an idolatrous background. And then when they saw meat that had been sacrificed to an idol and one of their believing brothers eating it, they were going like, uh, uh, you know, he's participating in this, idol this idolatry. And so Paul says, clears it up, says, I'm not going to do anything. I won't eat anything that's going to make my brother stumble. But that's why that sensitivity is there. Because by eating that food, you're participating in whatever it is you think the deity is accomplishing. Um, so that he does that. And you're taking notes in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13 is a discussion of the eating food sacrificed to idols. And then later in chapter 10, 14 through 22... He brings it up again, and in the second verse, he talks about participation, right? And let me just read that for a second. It's in 10, 1 Corinthians 10. I lost my reference. Uh, 14 to 22. 
says, um, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves. And he goes on to say, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. The word that's translated participation is koinonia, right? What else does that mean in Greek? Fellowship, thank you, or partnering, as Dave pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago, right? When you partake of these elements, you are participating in what that means, the broken body of Jesus Christ, his blood that was shed for us. It's serious when we enter into that um, uh, public display and proclamation. Now, Jesus changed it up a little bit because granted now, um, he, at the first at the Last Supper, which is really the First Supper, um, he changed it up to bread, right? So we get to hear, this, my, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it, eat it. Also, you know, Jesus was really into this idea. He'd been raised in a sacrificial system, right? He says at the end of John 6, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part in me. And all people, oh, that's, that's really creepy. What an outrageous thing to say. And, um, and he lost a lot of his followers when he said that. What was he saying? He was saying, you must participate. It's identification and participation with me that I need, or you're not one of me. You're not following me. Okay. Um, in a little bit, we're going to celebrate communion together. This is really our Passover because it's a commemoration of God's great deliverance in our lives, accomplished through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we commemorate when we um, can keep this sacrament. Now, I have to say, the passage that is probably read the most frequently in our communion observations is also from 1 Corinthians. Um, so there's just a treasure trove of interpretation stuff in here. Um, and if you're keeping track, it's 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. It follows on the heels of the previous discussions, and it's given in a corrective context. Again, the, the love feasts in Corinth were not like communion like this. It was basically a full dinner that included adult beverages, and some people just came and behaved like frat guys, and, and it's hogged the buffet line and got wasted. Okay, That's what was happening in Corinth, and Paul is speaking into that when he says, I offer to you what I got from the Lord, that on the night Jesus was betrayed, that's the background of him entering into that. So it's a corrective passage. Now, um, we almost always stop in the middle of his correction, um, but I think it's important that we continue with the second part, which is pretty strong medicine, all right? Um, In fact, I want to read it to you from the message, Eugene Peterson, and I just have to say, if you've never read 1 Corinthians in the message, it's going to blow your hair back right? It will make you say, wow, wow, I have not been paying attention to my faith. Maybe. All right, so let me start that whole communion passage. It it is in 1 Corinthians 12, and I'm reading from the message. Let me go over with you again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it is so centrally important. I received my instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master, Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, which we know was the the night of preparation for the Passover, um, took bread, having given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this, eat it, to remember me. 
After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you eat this bread and every time you drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You reenact the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the master irreverently is like part of the crowd that jeered and spit on him at his death. Is that the kind of remembrance you want to be part of? Examine your motives, test your heart, come to this meal in holy awe. If you give no thought, or worse, don't care about the broken body of the master when you eat and drink, you're running the risk of serious consequences. That's why so many of you even now are listless and sick and others have gone to an early grave. If we get this straight now, we won't have to be straightened out later. Better to be confronted by the master now than to face a fiery confrontation later. Them's fighting words. Um, and I just want to say that as I look at that passage and I think about it, um, it's, it's very, very, very serious, right? And I want to remember that even with Passover, it was for the believing. It was for the community of Israel. When we take the Lord's Supper together, it is for those who have believed in Jesus, that he was God's son, sent to reveal him to us, died on the cross, was raised again on the third day, ascended into heaven. His blood covered our sins so that we can appeal, appear before the throne of grace covered without condemnation. Okay? That, that's it in a nutshell. When we come to this meal... We are proclaiming that, right? We are participating in his death and remembering that until he comes again to take us with him to glory, okay? So um, I've heard this passage used, and um, I don't mean to be indelicate, but there are times when in preparation for our celebration of Passover, uh, a speaker will suggest that you examine your hearts, right? Which is a really good idea. I would never say that, you know, that that's not a good idea. It typically comes across as to look for any sin that's unconfessed or a bad habit or a nasty, you know, thought or whatever. May I suggest to you that is underselling the point. Of course you're that way. You're a sinner. That's why Jesus died. Okay, what the examination is, so to avoid the serious consequences that he talks about is, are you in the body of Jesus? Have you accepted, repented of your sins, pursued a life of, of submission to the spirit and following Jesus? That's the test that determines whether you're prepared to share this table with us and with the faithful. And today, if Hopefully it's not many of you, but if you're not in that situation of vital, personal, mystical, loving union with Jesus, just stay in your seat. If you want that, then you can believe too, and we'll talk about that in a second. So that's what I think that prohibition is about So when we examine ourselves. If you find yourself in Jesus, then this is in fact a celebration 
We are proclaiming his death by reenacting it in this symbolic way until he comes again, just like the Jews do at Passover. Commemorate his deliverance year after year after year. We do this as often as we do it in remembrance of him and the work that he's done for us. So, um, I have a corollary thought, and this is Daniel, not Paul. (sighs) He says in another passage in 11, if you eat and drink without recognizing the body of Christ, that's what unworthy manner means. I explained that spiritually, which is um, not accepting him, not believing and following him. But there's another thing that I like to take it abstractly. We started, I started by greeting you as the body of Christ, right? You are the body of Christ. Do you recognize one another? Do you recognize his body? There's lately been an issue that's been on my heart and the, arts of the, and the hearts of the elders in that we have received um, a lot of folks from other churches in our community where there's been um, meltdowns um, because by a stumble, uh, an attrition, whatever it is. And we see them and has caused us to think and pause and reflect on this. When those bodies melt down, that is a wound to the body of Christ. And we feel that pain. And we're seeking for a way to come to healing, to come to moving on. Like Joseph of Arimathea, who went and took the body of Jesus and 75 pounds of spices and lovingly, carefully anointed that body before it went in the tomb. How can we apply salve to Christ's body even while comforting and welcoming the people who have come to us in this process. I just urge you to seek God about that and have it on your heart because his body does not end at this back wall. It extends into our community, into the nation, into the world. So we're going to celebrate together. I want you to recognize the body of Christ So I'm going to torture you a little bit uh, so you can share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, Thank you. Uh, Here's what I want you to do. Take a look around. Everybody look around. Okay? Spot somebody you don't know or are not familiar with. Okay? I'm going to ask you in a second to stand up and go by that person. Right? So I'm going to ask you to take one minute, and if you're comfortable, stand up and mix. Go ahead, stand. Okay. 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 
All right, let me bring you back. Let me reel y'all in. Okay? It's going down, it's dampening. Shh. Wow. Brothers and sisters, that is a celebration. You are the body of Christ. There's another passage I didn't have time for. Paul talks about the body. There's different members and different parts, right? The eye says, just because I don't hear doesn't make me part of the body, right? You read that passage, there are some parts of the body that we treat with special modesty. And he goes on and on and on. Jesus Christ did not come to divide us, but unite us in a body, his body. So you're hanging with me so far. There's one more step. I'd like you to reach out and grab hands with everybody near you. Just make it work. All right, that's good. You guys are so rowdy. It's awesome. Uh, so here's what I want to do. There's little more powerful than hearing all of us raise our voices in prayer simultaneously. Will you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.